I'm Gerhard Lazu, and you're listening to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and modern software engineering. Dave Farley, co-author of Continuous Delivery, is back to talk about his latest book, Modern Software Engineering, a top three software engineering bestseller on Amazon UK this September. Shipping good software starts with you giving yourself permission to do a good job. It continues with a healthy curiosity, admitting that you don't know, and running many experiments safely without blowing everything up. And then there is scope creep. Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. The last time that we spoke was episode five. It was summer of 2021, about a year ago. And now you're back. I'm so happy to have you back, Dave. Welcome to Ship It. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our chat. Hmm. I cannot believe it's been a year. I was convinced when we talked in six months, we'll talk again because it was like (laughs) such an enjoyable episode. So my first takeaway, I'm going to do this differently. We have to do this more often because it's so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's, it's always fun to talk to you. So uh, maybe if we can fit it in. (laughs) Yeah, we just need to get better at planning. That's it. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Always. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened between last summer and this summer? I know that lots and lots of things. For you, something is happening every week, right? You have a new episode coming up every week, coming out every week on YouTube. But there's also a bunch of other things. So highlights, your highlights in the last year? I think we've kind of hit our stride a little bit with the YouTube channel. So, so I'm, I'm very proud of the YouTube channel. It, we started it by accident when the pandemic started and, and I wasn't traveling the world. But now 
I'm being opinionated on YouTube largely about software, and but I get the most glorious feedback from people all of the time saying, I tried what you said about test-driven development and it worked. I had this remarkable impact. Or yesterday I had somebody that contacted me saying, our deployment pipeline caught a catastrophic bug on its way to production yesterday. So thank you. So that so wow. that's that's absolutely delightful. So the pleasure that I get from giving my opinion on how to do software well and people listening to that opinion and applying it to their own work and finding sometimes that it works is enormous. So that I get a huge amount of job satisfaction. To be honest, sometimes it feels a little bit like a job because we've been releasing a video every week. We release videos every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. UK time. And so far, we haven't missed one for since March 2020. And there are times where I'm champing at the bit because I've got a huge list of things, topics that I want to cover. And there are times when I'm thinking, damn, what am I going to cover next week or <laughs> whatever. And sometimes I've got a bit of a buffer. I've got a few episodes in the can and sometimes I haven't depending on on life and how that treats me. But on the whole, it's been a great pleasure. Some of my high points, I'm quite proud of the video that we did last week and another one a few weeks ago. So I did for the first time a book about team topologies and the way that you can use teams as a tool to structure development on larger scales. And the the fantastic book by uh, Matt Skelton and Manuel Pice that describes that model so I talked a little bit about that and this, the current video, we'll be releasing another one later today, but the current video that was released last week is about platform teams and platforms and some of my approach to platform design. So how to design systems that are loosely coupled with respect services that are respect to other parts of the system and some of the strategies for that. And I was quite pleased with that because that's something that's kind of been in my kit bag for a long time as a software developer, and I've just I've wanted to talk about it for a long time. The popularity of the episodes inevitably on YouTube goes up or down, largely depending on whether you manage to hit the YouTube algorithm in the right place or not. Uh, and that's a, that's a kind of an entertaining game. My, my family who, who work with me on the production and the, the marketing that this, um, and so on for, for the YouTube channel, we all play the game of kind of watching the video and tracking where it's going and so on. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. The other side, in terms of in terms of since we spoke last, this sounds like advertising, and, and, and yeah, I'm advertising, but I'm not really advertising. I'm just telling you what's going on. Is um, we've done a lot with um, self training courses that teach different aspects of software development, and we're starting to see the hockey stick effect of that taking off. So we're selling quite a lot of those courses now that I'm very proud of those too they're very good but that seems to be self-sustaining now so we, we're getting uh, at some level uh, I, I still need to work and get paid for these things and so this is all it's all paying for itself now which is nice yeah um, there's one other thing and I remember that thing because we talked about it off the recording when we recorded last year and we said okay we have to talk again in about six months because you were writing at the time the modern software engineering book. And I was really looking forward to that coming out. Of course it did. Uh, January of this year it came out. I could hardly wait to read it, uh, for me at least. That's when I got it January this year. I read it, I, le I left a review and I really enjoyed that. So that was like one other thing 
that came out and was like one of my favorite things that you produced this year. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was thinking in terms of the YouTube channel and stuff, but, but you're right, that's been a big event for me. That book was two or three years in the writing. I, I tend to write fairly slowly because I, for, for books anyway, because I'm usually doing other things and so I, I, I write in the gaps between other things. But I'm very proud of that book. I was nervous uh, when we spoke last a little of the release because I wasn't quite sure how it would land. It's a different kind of book and I think it might fool some people. Somebody in review recently said that it was um, a very philosophical book about software development and I think it kind of is. Uh, I think that's correct. It's not a, you know, put tab A into slot B kind of book i would characterize it i think of it as a, a a somewhat thoughtful book about software development and what it takes to do it well and one of the things that happens you know as one gets older and more experienced one gets a broader context on on ideas and kind of a little bit of ability to do the meta thing and, and see you know, watch yourself and see why the things that you work work and why the things that don't work don't work and so on a little bit. And and I, I wanted to try and synthesize some of that. I came to the conclusion that I thought there were some fairly deep principles that were common to all of the good software development that I'd seen. And I wanted to try and capture those. And that's what the the modern software engineering book was really targeted at. What, what are the durable ideas that go beyond ideas like programming language or framework or or even design patterns to some degree what are those principles that are table stakes that's at least in my opinion it's impossible to do a good job without those things and i wanted to try and synthesize those into a into a description and I've got my version of that. That's the modern software engineering book is my version of that. One of the fascinating things is, and and understandable, if I were right, those ideas are, are durable. They will have been around for a long time and they will be around for a long time. And one of the things that I am seeing is that I keep seeing other sources now that reinforce my opinion on those ideas. I saw a fantastic presentation that was recorded by Michael Feathers 10 years ago. Uh, recently, uh, where he's talking, I hadn't seen it when I wrote the book, but he's talking about one of the ideas that I describe in the book, which is that testability drives quality in design. So striving for testability in your software improves the quality of its design. Uh, he doesn't quite say it that way around. He says it differently to me, and but we're talking about the same idea. And I think I, that's something that pleases me. I, I don't think that there that it's a book that's filled with brand new ideas, but I think it pulls together a lot of ideas and puts them into, uh, it organizes them in a way that they're easier to understand their relationship and how to consume them. Well, one of the downsides of that, one of the criticisms that I see in feedback on the book is that you, if you're reading it to my mind, you know, in a narrow way, you might see it as being repetitive. I don't see it that way, but I can understand the criticism because it loops round because these things are interlinked and you need to talk about the way in which they're related to one another. Yeah. But I'm very, I'm very proud of it. And I'm, I am proud that it's, been, it's landed extremely well. As far as I can tell, so it's regularly best, a bestseller on Amazon in one, of the, in one or two or sometimes three of the categories that it's in. And it's regularly in the top few thousand books on Amazon UK, at least, which is usually pretty a sign of it going pretty well. Yeah. 
I'm sure a lot of it uh, has to do with my excellent review, which I left in January. No, I'm sure it is. I'm, sure, I'm fairly convinced it is. <laughs> Only eight people found it helpful so far. So. <laughs> but what One I of think, them might have been me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the rest of your team. So I think we know. <laughs> Which people <laughs> found it helpful. <laughs> but uh, I even I even included a picture of my notes from the book and even like a little drawing. And I remember yes. putting like a loop there, the OODA loop or whatever you want to call it. And I was like, for me, to be honest, the title, I was expecting something else. Yeah. But I think, I think the title is trying to hide the longevity of the ideas because it says, it says modern, well, it will, they will always be modern, whether it's 10 years in the, in the future or 20 years. I, I, I'm pretty sure this is a classic. Well, thank you. Yeah. So while it's very difficult to capture those ideas that are very compressed, because the principles, that's what they are. There's like a lot of experience that goes into writing them. And to have a series of those that work well together it's really, really hard. To write something relevant for 10 years in the future, very difficult, right? Any framework, any programming language, even if it's Java, 10 years from now, I don't think it will be as relevant as it is today. It stood the time really well, but there's new languages coming, new approaches coming. We have functions as a service. We have like whole new paradigm shifts in the industry. So what are the principles that will survive all those changes because change is constant and it's big and it's bigger and it accelerates and all that. So for me, it's a classic. For me, it's something that I will keep in my library and I intend to reread every couple of years. And I think if you think of it that way, it's a book that, you know, there's pleasure in owning it. And few books to me are like that. One of them is a calculus <laughs> book, yeah. you know, just like an example. Mm. Well, that's lovely. Thank, thank you very much, and and, uh, and genuinely thank you for the review. I think it's one of the more popular reviews um, uh, on Amazon. Lots lots of people think it's uh, helpful. It's usually top of the list of reviews. I think pictures make a big difference. Like if people, if if someone took the time to handwrite notes from the book took a picture and posted it, it means they really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you for that. But, but I, I agree with you. I, I, I think, so I've been, I've been working in professional software development for close on 40 years. And I've used, I've written, I, for the book, I counted up. I, I've written professional soft, software professionally in something like 20 odd languages. I've used probably hundreds of different frameworks of different kinds and thousands of libraries of different kinds over that time. And as you say, all of them to some degree are somewhat ephemeral. Mm. You know, um, there's not many people that write software professionally in assembler anymore, for example, you know, I, I did. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you know, I think that there are some of these ideas that have had an impact on all of those things. And these days, I largely work as a consultant and advise companies building software of all different kinds with all different kinds of technologies. And these ideas apply to all of them. These are ideas that if you if you work in a way that's focused on doing more of these sorts of things, being more iterative, focusing on feedback, being more experimental. 
those sorts of things and building code that's more modular, cohesive, has better separation of concerns, is loosely coupled in the right places and has good, good abstraction. Those sorts of ideas. If you do that, your software's better. Whatever the nature of the software, whatever it's for, whatever technology you're using, it's just better than the alternative if it exhibits those properties. That's something important that implicitly at some level, if you're good, if you're experienced, you know, but we haven't, we haven't, I've not seen that synthesized in the same way, in a way that can, you know, help people to see that, that haven't got to the point in their careers where they're seeing it. And I think that's what an engineering discipline for software ought to be able to do. It ought to be able to improve our chances of success. If we're doing, you know, I think one of the things, one, one of the, the bridges that we burnt historically in software development was by imagining that software development was some kind of cookie cutter process. And it's not. It's an intensively creative process. And we need to optimize for that. So the book is divided into really three sections. So it talks about a series of ideas that are focused on optimizing for learning, because that's deeply part of what it is that we do as a discipline. And it talks about a set of ideas that are optimized for managing the complexity of the systems that we're building so that we're able to maintain and sustain our ability to change our systems over time. Yeah. And the third part is about how we pull all of those together to be able to apply those and some techniques, ideas like continuous delivery, optimizing for testability, speed, those sorts of things that we can use as tools to kind of drive our, our ability to learn faster and to manage complexity more effectively. But if we focus on optimizing for learning and optimizing for managing complexity, I, I think we inevitably increase our chances of success. We can't get, we can never guarantee success, but we're a damn sight more likely to be able to do a better job if we do those things than if we don't. And that's really what interested me, what I was trying to get to. And, you know, in my personal experience, it works. And now I'm, I'm very pleased that it seems to be working for other people as well, thinking in those kinds of terms. Those are some really powerful ideas. I've learned them the hard way. You know, my career is maybe half of yours, maybe, maybe less. But it's interesting how we all seem to converge on the same ideas independently that work. And then finding like-minded people that you realize, actually, it's not just me. Many others had this problem. And this is a potential solution. Yeah. And guess what? It may work. It's likely to work. You have to try it out to see what exactly is changing about this approach. But the fundamentals, they will be the same. What changes is the implementation based on your context. And that's what most people get stuck on. They think that, again, going back to the cookie cutter process, you can't take a specific like steps that you apply and it will just work. Uh, you'll need to adapt, you'll need to change it, you'll need to understand wiring certain things. And when you do that, you're more likely to succeed. And the keyword is more likely to succeed. It still depends on like a lot of other things that happen. And most of it is others, other people not understanding or other people, you know, fighting against it. You know, they want a different way. They want maybe a top-down approach. They want, no, I, I told you to do this. So you have to do this and you have to do it by tomorrow. And people say, well, that's not how it works. Like we can't, it's impossible. So what would you say to people that are in those situations that they are starting to understand these principles, they're starting to apply them but it just goes wrong in a thousand different ways and it's not because of these principles. I think there are a number of aspects to that. And 
one of the things that I've said, I've said on my YouTube channel a couple of times is is that I, I and I, I think I, I wrote it in the book. I don't think it's anybody else's job to give us permission to do a good job. That's one of those things that we take responsibility for. If in our own work, it's our responsibility to do what a good job is. Now, of course, there's always the possibility that we can work somewhere dysfunctional and for people that don't understand the problem. But the first thing, the thing that's most clearly in our control is how we think about and approach our jobs. So the starting point is don't shortcut, don't parse your estimates, don't say to your boss who's saying feature, 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 well, we could deliver it next week if we didn't do any testing and we didn't do a good job of design. That's not doing a good job. That's not going to solve, that's not going to give you or your boss success in the long term. And one of the things that, you know, I would like to, if I could wave a magic wand, if I could make one idea stick, you know, across our industry, it's the software developments in a long term game, not a short term game. So, you know, I can gain time by doing a crap job for a week or two. And, you know, if I'm leaving and, you know, my somebody's telling me that I've got to hit a deadline in a week, I could cut all sorts of corners, write software that doesn't work very well, that's almost unmaintainable, and then I could leave and I suffer no consequences. Mm-hmm. But that's a very, very short-term view of the world. Yeah. The reality of software development is usually we're, you know, we're, we're on employment at least for, for a year or two usually, and we're going to be around for a little while. We are going to suffer the consequences of our actions. And even if it's not us, somebody else is going to suffer the consequences of our actions because software lives for a long time and he's worked on for a long time. I can't remember the numbers now, but they are hugely in favor of the amount of time that software spends in maintenance over the time it spends in development. Uh, therefore, we need to be building software that is a nice, easy place to work. And if we optimize for that, if we optimize to make sure that our software is readable, concise, uh, you know, understandable, testable, then that's going to allow us to go into it later when we've forgotten about what it was and change it sensibly. If we have ideas about where the lines are in our software that separates one set of responsibilities from another so we can work on one part without compromising another, that's going to make it easy to maintain those those sorts of things. So if we do that, then that maintains our ability to change. That means that if I wrote the crap this week and I've got to fix it next week, that was no longer a win. That was no longer a benefit. That no longer saved me time. And there's data that backs that up. If you look at the state of DevOps report and the Dora metrics and the Accelerate book, that sort of information, then it says that teams that score highly on the metrics based on that sociological analysis of software development High performers on that scale spend 44% more of their time on new features than low performers. And what are the measures that they're measuring? They're measuring the speed with which we kind of deliver change into production and the quality of the changes. So so throughput and stability 
are the metrics that measures are based on. Stability is a measure of quality. And you if you want to go fast, you've got to do high quality work because that's what's sustainable. So cutting corners is not only short term naive from the point of view of you as the developer, because you're going to suffer later when you've got to fix the crap that you wrote last week. But it's also naive from the point of view of the organizations that employ us, mm -hmm. because now you're building worse software slower. And our objective is obviously the opposite of that. We want to build better software faster. So optimizing for the short term is dumb. And so the first step that we can take is to make our own choices, you know, and take responsibility for the quality of the work that you do. It's not, it's not your boss's job to give you permission to write tests against your code. That's your job. And I think often those sorts of things are... Forgive me being a grumpy old man, but I think sometimes they're used as a bit of an excuse. I don't really want to write tests, so I'll blame my boss for not allowing me to write tests kind of thing. But even if, you know, whichever way around, that's what it takes to write higher quality software. So do the stuff that it takes to write higher quality software. And the other thing that the data says is you're going to have a nicer time. You're going to enjoy it more. You're going to build more software and you're going to have a better time while you're doing it. And... That's in the interest of your organizations. So the second part is important too. If you do work in one of those dysfunctional organizations that's pressuring you in the wrong way, some of the stuff that I've just talked about, some of the sources that I've just pointed you in the direction of, the Accelerate book, State of DevOps Report and so on, are sources of information to try and start changing their minds to point out that they are being irrational. If they want to deliver software faster, then they should be actively insisting that you do a higher quality job. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is a reliability platform for every developer. Incidents are a win, not an if situation, and they impact everyone in the organization not just SREs. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. Robert, what is it about teams getting distracted by incidents and not being able to focus on the core product that upsets you? I think that incidents bring a lot of anxiety and sometimes fear and maybe even a level of shame that can cause this paralysis in an organization from progress. And when you have the confidence to manage incidents at any scale of any variety, everyone just has this breath of fresh air that they can go build the core product even more. I don't know if anyone's had the, the opportunity, maybe is the word, uh, to call the fire department. But no matter what, when the fire department shows up, it doesn't matter if the building is hugely on fire. They are calm, cool and collected because they know exactly what they're going to do. And that's what Fire Hydrant is built to help people achieve. Very cool. Thank you, Rob. Robert, if you want to operate as a calm, cool, collected team when incidents happen, you got to check out Fire Hydrant. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all the features. No credit card required to sign up. Get started at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. So if I was to do a summary of what you just told us, I would say that, first of all, go slow, take your time and do it right. Yes. And while it may appear slow, you're actually just going smooth. You're optimizing for smoothness long term. 
you don't want go fast and go slow then go fast and go slow or go fast for quite some time and then start going slow and you're wondering like why why am i going this slow well there's many reasons and it's based on what you were doing in the past so just optimize for like that nice smooth delivery and figure out what your team space is yes everything has a natural pace and if you try to go against it if you're trying to go too slow people will get demoralized because you're just like dragging your heels like you're just wasting time basically if you try to go too fast people will get frustrated because they can't do proper work so find that balance show up every day and then the rest will just happen basically <laughs> you know just let it unfold Yes, and I, the key idea, the point, one of the things that really convinced me to be a big fan of the Dora metrics and the Accelerate book and all of those sorts of things was came fairly early on. It, might, it was either their first or second release of the State of DevOps report, I think. But there was a, there was a statement in, in, in one of those uh, reports, 2014, 20, 2015, around that kind of time, that said there's no trade-off between speed and quality. And... I kind of knew that implicitly, but I didn't really know it. I didn't really grok it at that point. And I certainly didn't have any data to back up my assumption, my belief that doing high quality work mattered in terms of being able to be productive as well as everything else. I wanted to do high quality work because I, you know, I was a software developer and I like to write code that's elegant and well-tested and all of those kinds of things. But I didn't before then really i was less forceful in my arguments for quality than i am now now i think that there's no argument for doing low quality the quick wins of cutting corners on quality are so short term that they're irrelevant i think that the line crosses where you're going faster by doing high quality work in small numbers of weeks a month or two at the most so if you've got a deadline that's more than a month out then you must be doing high quality work if you want to hit that deadline. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way to optimize for doing that, not cutting corners on quality. And still, I see teams and organizations that are almost structured to try and cut corners on quality, which is, which is crazy. Now, I do have to make an admission. It wasn't that long ago, a few months back, when we did cut corners in my team and we did ship code that wasn't really tested but the only reason why we did that was to learn. Mm -hmm. So we did the short term, we took the long term hit so that short term we can learn more as to what works, what does like the final design look like. And we just literally stitched it together so that it kind of works and we can learn from what does the right solution look like. What happened afterwards is that we realized that some of the tests, because <laughs> like the systems which integrate were very difficult to write. Mm -hmm. So you have like, you need to write some integration tests, but focus most of your time on unit tests and, you know, higher speed tests, which take less than a second to run rather than minutes. Yeah. So what we realized is that we were able to test the idea with users. We said, this is alpha software. We just want to know, like, does this look right? And can you tell us what, what this is missing? And then we took the time to do it right. What do you think about that approach? Do you think it's still a no? 
No, I, no, I don't. I don't think that's a no. I, I think that's absolutely fine. But you're doing it under controlled circumstances. That's the difference. There's a, in the original Extreme Programming book. There was an idea in released in the late '90s by Kent Beck. That there was an idea that was introduced that was called spikes. And the idea of a spike is a spike is a different kind of investigation. A spike is what you're really interested in now is not producing some functions or features for the user's benefit, you're producing something that you're going to learn from. And in that circumstance, you don't necessarily have to be doing production quality work at that point. You just want to get to the answer as quickly as possible. I would catch that in slightly different terms, you know, in the way that I describe things. It's all about working experimentally, and there are different kinds of experiments. This is an experiment where we want to kind of try something out as a stepping stone to, you know, conscious stepping stone to making some choices in terms of the direction of our products or our team or whatever else. Mm. And so I think it's perfectly acceptable at that point to control the variables in a way that it's not going to damage anything. You don't want to be releasing shoddy code into production for everybody, but maybe for a small group of alpha users or something like that. Absolutely sensible and acceptable to learn. This kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, is that none of this is simple. There isn't, a, if there was a recipe, if there was a sequence of steps that we could follow that would always work out and give us the answer every time, we could write code to do that and we'd be out of a job. It's not that simple. It takes human ingenuity, human decision-making, and let's be clear, it takes smart people to build good software. And Let's not be ashamed of that. That's part of the joy of the job is solving complicated problems. That's what you know, engineering is about, is about trying to you know, apply all of, use all of the tools, whatever they might be, intellectual, physical, whatever, bring them all together and try and do the best job that we can. And that includes applying all of our, our experience and skills and talents and so on to try and do that. So I have nothing wrong at all with that, but you know, there are always, I always try and be cautious the way that I talk about these things. You and I both were cautious earlier on when we were saying it doesn't guarantee success, but it increases the probability of success. That's the best that we can ever do. There's no guarantee of success. We could do the perfect job of software development. We could be do, flying as a team and building something no, that nobody wants to use. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's not a success. So we've got to learn. We've got to figure out. And part of what we've got to learn is, are we building the right products? Are we building them in the right way? Do they resonate with people and so on? And none of that is simple. None of that is the sort of thing that we can just kind of put a measuring stick on and say yes or no. So we've got to carry out these experiments. Sometimes they're subjective. Sometimes they're quantitative. But that's how we learn, trying stuff out, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, and maintaining our ability to, to, to make progress in this sea of the unknown to some extent. I think being humble, admitting that we'll be most wrong. I mean, we will be more wrong than right. Yes. Being able to accept that, hey, I was wrong. You know, having a team that is kind to making mistakes, optimizing for getting it out there as soon as possible and as often as possible. Because let's be honest, you will not get it right, maybe even on the 10th try. You'll keep trying and eventually things will start making sense. But to do that, you cannot, you know, design or create the perfect plan, 
the perfect software that when you get it out there, it will just work <laughs> because you have a perfect plan and a perfect delivery mechanism that doesn't exist nowhere. And I think you talk about this often where the perfect plan, it doesn't matter how long you take to think it through, to, to plan it, to manage it, that's not what this looks like. This game is played differently and the long-term approach is key. Like, if you're optimizing for months or weeks, forget about it. It's years, maybe even decades in some cases. Absolutely. Uh, there's a few things that you said in there that I, I liked that you said about teams being kind to one another. Um, I, I think that's important. And, and being tolerant of uh, allowing ourselves the freedom to get things wrong. I, I think very deeply about in my own work at whatever level about that because as you say i start out from the assumption that nearly everything i do is going to be wrong in some way and so you know how am i going to how am i going to be able to cope with that and how am i going to allow myself the freedom to change my mind technically if we're designing software that gets back to the stuff about managing complexity all of the things about managing complexity are giving us the freedom to make a mistake and correct it later on without throwing away everything that we've ever done. I think that's really important. I think of myself as a software developer as being defensive in, in these terms. I'm going to start out trying to design my systems and code my systems in ways that allow me to change my mind about some of the things as I move forward. And every, you know, this is true about everything. This is true about, you know, the goals for the software. If we go and ask our users, they don't know what we want. If we ask our product owners, they don't know what, what's going to work for users. If you ask the developers, they, they don't know what's going to work for users either. We've got to try stuff out and find what lands and find what doesn't. I'm occasionally um, guilty of using sound bites. And one of the sound bites I've used in this space is that a perfect plan is a perfectly stupid idea. Because <laughs> a perfect a perfect plan has one solution. You're kind of targeting, you're precisely targeting this one point in time and space that you're trying to hit. And there's almost no chance for anything, you know, anything beyond a few milliseconds, there's almost no chance that you're going to be able to perfectly hit that target. If you think, one of the ideas in the, in the optimizing for learning section of, of my book is the idea of iteration and well, two ideas, iteration and feedback. So if we if we work iteratively, we, we're going to make progress in small steps. Okay, we're going to after each step that gives us an opportunity to reflect on the progress that we've made. If we have some kind of fitness, so we, we're going to have a target. Our plans are in the form of there's this flag on a hill that we'd like to kind of. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we got there? And those are sort of loose, slightly imprecise, uh, inexact in terms of what it is that they want to do. But, you know, it's the moonshot. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, we could achieve that, that goal? And then we, we're going to start iterating. And as long as we have some kind of fitness function, a way of measuring, are we closer or further from that target? then even if we just did a random walk and just started iterating without any intelligence at all, we could sort of try something out. Does that move us closer to our goal or further away? We discard the things that move us further away and keep the things that move us closer. If we just did that, we'd hit the goal. 
Even if we move the goal, even if partway through we think that's the wrong goal, we're going to shift the goal and move it over here. But and we we'd rechange, we'd change our fitness function, but we'd still hit the goal. That's the power of iteration. So there are with an iterative approach, there are many ways of winning. So that's one way in which it improves our chances of success because now we've got more chances of success because we can find multiple routes to our goal. So um, you know. <sighs> I think planning is useful you know, as the general, I've forgotten who it was, one of the World War II generals, I think, famously said, you know, planning's wonderful, plans are stupid. You know, I, I like planning. I, li I like thinking about, you know, what's the future like? But I think people that spend, you know, I, I once worked on a team and the project manager went and locked themselves away in a room for two weeks writing Gantt charts. And guess what? <laughs> the Gantt chart didn't meet reality at any point. Even when she came out of the room with the Gantt chart, it, we, we'd already moved on from there. You know, it's it, you can't. It, it doesn't work. And so it's more complicated than that. And I, I, that's one of those naive things. So seeing it as this kind of complex adaptive system, which you know the whole environment of the software and the people that are building it and the customers that are using it are changing all of the time. And if you make one change in one place it changes what other people perceive of it that's just where we live that's that's just the, the kind the, the nature of the place that we inhabit as human beings and as software professionals and so suck it up we just got to find ways of working there and that takes iteration feedback though working experimentally those sorts of ideas to be able to navigate that kind of space and some of our guesses will be wrong that's fine there's nobody that knows the right answer the the, the common refrain of software development teams saying, oh, we would have done a good job if, if only the, the requirements had been correct. They're never going to be correct. That, that's just an illusion. Nobody knows the answer. Even if you go, to, even if you had the user sitting in your room, that's only their guess. One of the things that I, I liked that Steve Jobs used to say, he said, well, how will the users know what they want until I tell them? That sounds incredibly arrogant, and it is. I mean, I think he was an incredibly arrogant man. But... <clears throat> Nevertheless, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's truth there. You know, if you're doing something innovative, you ought to be ahead of the users. You weren't going to get an iPod or an iPhone by asking users what they wanted. You've got to think ahead. But at the same time, you want a vision that the, your users are going to love. So you've got to be listening to your users. So it's not as simple as that nobody knows the truth. Steve Jobs got it wrong lots of times as well and build crazy things that nobody liked. That's just life. And so, and so working in ways that allow us the freedom to make those mistakes and correct for them, to my mind, is the only sane strategy. Can you think of examples of real-world fitness functions that teams can apply to determine if, first of all, they're going in the right direction and are they closer or further away from that goal? What would that look like in the real world? I think there are a variety of, of those kinds of things, but they're always quite contextual. One of my friends has recently written a very good book about SRE. He, he works at Siemens Healthcare and they adopted SRE at Siemens and got some really good results. But one of the things, that it slightly changed my thinking about SRE reading his book and one of the ideas there is this idea, in my terminology, it's about working experimentally. So part of the idea of SRE is that you set, you define what your service level indicators are. When you're building something, you say, you know, this is the measure that's going to tell me whether this is working well or not. 
And then you set what you, your service level objectives, what scores on that measurement you would deem counted as success. And that makes sense. And nearly always when you talk about SRE, think people think about that in terms of technical measures, you know, uh, throughput, CPU utilization, those sorts of things. And that's, that's fine. That's good. Those are one form of those measures for certain classes of changes. They're extremely useful. But there's another group that are equally valid and that this model works equally well for, I think, which is the more business focused things. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons that we tend not to think in these terms is because it's so much more contextual. It's going to be unique or maybe not unique, but it's going to be specific to each individual feature. If you're building a feature that's intended to recruit more users, then maybe your service level indicators are new registrations and your service level objective is you want to up registrations by 80%. This is amazing because you obviously didn't know about this, but my team did exactly that. <laughs> the SLI was number of active users. We had this new feature, which we made an assumption that it will generate more users that will use this service. And the SLO was 100, 100 weekly. We, the, the, the measure of success is 100 weekly active users. Obviously, it was zero. So the starting point was zero. So how far can we get on this scale? And that is an example of like adding or building this new thing will generate this many active users in this time span. And if not, why not? What is missing? Is it fundamentally wrong? Is it the way we implement it wrong? And that's exactly the context in which we're trying to learn. So we took a few weeks to build it as quickly as possible to figure out how many users, how many active weekly users we can get in one month. And we gave ourselves two months time total, actually a whole quarter, but you know, part of it was the proposal. We will come back to that. But the idea was the SLI, weekly active users, and the SLO was 100. That was it. Exactly. So there's loads of different ways in which that's valuable as an approach. Of course, you know, the actual measures are going to be dependent on the nature of the feature. You know, maybe it's not about recruiting users. Maybe it's about making more money or getting more throughput or people recommending more games, you know, their friends to come and play games or maybe just improve, improving the share price for the company. I, I don't know. But we want, you know, it, like any experiment, if we think carefully about the impact that we're trying to achieve, and Goiko Adzik talks about this in his wonderful book, Impact Mapping. He talks about focusing on impacts, which is a, another way of thinking about some of this sort of stuff. But if we do that kind of thinking, we're going to come up with sometimes easy to measure things and sometimes almost impossible to measure things. If we do one that I just mentioned, you know, it's going to improve the, our share price. How do we know that it was this that improved our share price rather than anything else? How do we control our experiment? How do we control the variables in our experiment in a way that we can kind of determine what its impact are? None of this is simple. This is incredibly difficult. But just the thinking about it, just thinking about it makes it clearer what it is that we're trying to achieve 
and helps us along the road. And if we can come up with some measures that are simple and easy, that's great. Netflix use something that they call a canary index, which is an incredibly similar idea, which is basically they set up what they're going to measure for each change. They automate, you know, they say what the objective is and they, into their deployment automation tools, they put, if the, the canary doesn't hit its service level objectives, they'll pull it from production as part of their release process. This is all just about working a little bit smarter, just being a little bit more thoughtful about how the changes that we make land with our users. And ultimately, that's what we are for. That's, 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 what, that's what our job is, is to build software that's useful to people to do something. And so figuring out how we measure that as part of the development of each new change it's a very good disciplined way of thinking about that and working a bit more experimentally. It doesn't have to be heavyweight, it can be simple. But, but just, just as a starting point, just thinking about how would you know whether it, whether it was a success or a failure? What would it tell you? That's gonna change your perspective on the features that you're building and how you build them for the better. Yeah, so those SLIs and SLOs are important even outside of SRE. And if you start applying them to other things, especially if the business, well, guess what? Business will be happy, SREs will be happy, and developers will be happy too, because the measure is not lines of code, not PRs merged, not like, you know, test coverage, all those things. I mean, they are helpful to some people and in some contexts, but the stuff that really matters is this, the impact on business. And guess what? Figuring that out is really hard, which is why most people will like not even try. It's just too hard, but it's worth it. By the way, everything worth doing is hard. Yes, indeed. But let's just think about what that means for a minute. So we're going to build a feature and we're not going to bother thinking about figuring out whether the feature is useful or not. What does that mean? How is that a good idea? We're just going to randomly throw features of the wall and hopefully cross our fingers that some of them will stick. That's not really, you know, likely to be very successful so that, that's just kind of the you know the random that's random development which you know in some way if we want to target our development and optimize you know steer it in the direction of doing things that are useful rather than doing things that are not we need to be a bit smarter than that and let's be fair a large part of the history of our industry is people just building features and throwing them at the wall. There's, there's great data, and there has been for years, about the proportion of features in commercial software that are ever used by, by users. There's something like, if I remember rightly, I, remember, I think it was Microsoft released some data many, many, many years ago saying that something like 60% of the features that they built were never used by anybody. Oh yes. <laughs> so, so that's that, that's sixty percent waste right there. <laughs> yeah. So how do you be smart? And you know, Microsoft are industry standards. Microsoft are pretty good at writers, writing software compared to most organisations. So they're not a failure case really. That's just how the industry worked. We can do better than that by just being more thoughtful. It's hard. It's incredibly hard sometimes to figure out. First, what the service level objectives or service level indicators are. And second, how to control the variables so that we'll understand the message to know that this change had that impact rather than some other change. But that's what it takes to work a bit more experimentally. And when we do that, we can get better results. That is a great answer to the fitness function question. Thank you very much. <laughs> Amazing one. It's a pleasure. The other one, the other follow-up question which I have, and they're somewhat related, 
we talked about planning. We talked about uh, the Gen charts that, you know, change by the time you just create them. They just no longer match reality. So what are your thoughts on plans and Gen charts versus proposals? Proposals that team make for a new feature or some new initiative. How important do you think they are? What do you think they should contain if you think they're a good idea? But let's just start here. The way that I think about that question is that this is kind of the in the territory of no estimates, the hashtag no estimates kind of idea of thinking about development. And I confess that I am a little bit on the fence. Emotionally, I'm on the side of no estimates. I, th I think in reality, that's closer to the truth. But I think that there's some practicalities. You know, if you are in the game of making, you know, you're you're an organisation that's delivering software services to other people or something, you're not going to be able to win the contract unless you can kind of come up with some idea of how much it's going to cost. And you know, if we hire a builder, you know, if in our houses or something like that, or a mechanic to work on our car they're going to give us a rough idea of what it's likely to cost. And then they'll come and say, oh, sorry, we found this thing and it's going to cost more, usually. So I, I think this is a complex area. So the reality of the situation, as I see it, is one form of the reality is that there is no way to estimate accurately. There's, there was one of the books that was influential in my history was a, a book written by Steve McConnell called Rapid Development. And he talked about all kinds of different ideas. And, and one of the things that he pointed out is kind of the, the trumpet shaped curve of estimation. At the point at which you start of a project, estimates are typically out by a factor of four. And the only time when you know when your estimate is accurate is when the project's finished you know, in, tr in traditional software development. And that resonated with me. I, I, I kind of liked that idea. And nobody, almost nobody on the planet is going to give you the contract if your estimate is four times bigger than somebody else's. Mm. So th there's this nasty cultural, sociological capitalist drive to underestimate. When your boss comes to you and says, how long is this going to take? You want to please your boss. And so you say, oh, it'll probably be simple. It'll probably could be a couple of weeks, you know. And then you find out later that you're wrong. So I think that's always the risk. So you can never be accurate. I think that practically sensible organizations are moving away from the big budget brands and sort of long-term estimates and, and those sorts of things that used to hold sway. And the leading thinkers either don't do the estimation at all, which is that they just see... They think about the predictability differently. I'll come back to that in a minute. But what they tend to do instead is that they just invest in making progress. So if, if you've got a business idea, you go to the people that look after the money, say, I've got this business idea. And they say, okay, well, we'll give you this bit of money that will allow you to test the business idea. Come back and talk to us again in a week or two when you know more. And that, if you think about that, that's a little bit like kind of a venture capital approach to funding where, you know, you have a little bit of seed money to try and just see whether, test out the, the sanity of the idea. And then you have a little bit more money to invest in trying to exploit the idea and then a little bit more money later on. And then hopefully you're starting to make money and then it all starts to, to work out. And there are many organizations that are starting to apply those kinds of 
planning and budgeting approaches internally for projects. And I think that's very sensible because if we think about this problem of estimation, it's kind of, it's, it's an explosion on a, on a time series graph is, is that, you know, as time goes forward, you get these divergence, our worst case and our best case estimates kind of start to diverge. So the longer the time horizon, the worst our estimates are gonna be, the worse the variance, the error bars in our, in our calculation. So estimating over shorter periods of time is useful if you've got to do it. My favorite story about estimation is from one of my projects that I worked on. I worked on a project at a company called Elmax where we built one of the world's highest performance financial exchanges. And at some point, one day, we, the team that I was working with at the time, we'd finished, we'd just finished an estimation session and it was lunchtime on a Friday or something like that. So being England, we went to the pub for lunch and we were sat in the pub. Actually, no, it was after work. We were socializing. So after work and our product owner came in and she said, oh, hi, how's everybody? And she came and sat down with us and we were chatting and she said, what are you guys been doing? And we said, oh, we just, we just finished an estimation session. She says, oh, do you still do that? And we kind of looked at her and said, what do you mean? Do we still do that? We're doing it for you. He said, oh, I haven't been looking at those for months. <laughs> so, what do you mean we haven't been looking at those? He said, well, I did a statistical breakdown. And if we just count the number of stories that we've got and project that forward, that's more accurate than your estimates as a predictive tool. So I just rely on that. Wow. <laughs> and, so, and so we stopped doing estimation at that point and worked forward. I said I'd come back to the idea of the predictability. I think that one of the things that working in an agile way, many small steps gives you is the ability to optimize for either predictability or efficiency. But if you want to be predictable, the way that you're predictable is that you're building up enough error, error margin that you're not very efficient. Mm, that's right. So agile development is wonderful at hitting a date. If you ask most organizations, what do you want? Do you want to be able to hit a particular date, you know, with a particular feature set? Or would you prefer to work as efficiently as possible? And so deliver more features by that date, whatever the features might be. I think nearly all of them would want the second one if you could have the, the same conversation. For cultural reasons, they might want the predictability because that, that's what they think is more important. But in reality, I think that what you'd want is you'd want to work more efficiently. So I, Agile can optimize for that. But because so continuous delivery in particular, which is my favorite way of organizing software development, I define it in part as working so our software is always releasable. So we can always release, we can always hit a date. We just can't say what's in the release. And we can work until we've got all of the stuff that you want. But that's one of those long-term guesses that's almost certainly wrong, so why do you care? And in order to be able to work to do that, then that means that we can't fix the date. The stupid, the, the irrational thing is when people try to fix the time and the scope. That's just not sane and that's where you have to pad the estimates one way or another in order to be able to do that therefore you are by definition working slower than you could be scope or time scope or time time th or th scope. those are the yeah, exactly yeah those are the variables that we have and, and and they can be useful so i i often draw a graph if you i like tracking actuals so so if you're tracking actuals your, your actual rate of production, you usually end up with kind of a wobbly graph. And then you draw some lines that kind of touch the, the topmost points and the bottommost points. Those are based on past performance, your best and worst case error bands. And therefore, you can then draw a line 
you know, these are the ranges of time that you can hit for a particular scope, or these are the ranges of scope that you can hit for a particular time. I'm suspicious of scope as a target because I don't, that's one of the things if we are being experimental that we don't really know. We ought to be, I tend to fall on the side of wanting to be able to manipulate the scope of what we're building for a variety of reasons, maybe partly to hit time and time schedules, but more likely to be able to do what our users want because that's going to change and our understanding of that's going to change. So if we're not changing our ideas about what's in scope and what's out, we're probably not doing a very good job of, of understanding the problem, it seems to me. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Century and their upcoming developer experience conference called DEX, Sort the Madness. This is a hybrid event you can attend in San Francisco or virtually on September 28th. They have an amazing speaker lineup. And I'm here with Sarah Guffles, head of DevRel at Century. Sarah, what's the story with this conference? Well, coding is hard. We at Century know this. We integrate with everything that we possibly can to make that process easier for developers, to make fixing errors and performance issues actionable as quickly as possible. And we can't fix this. <laughs> we can't fix fix the fact that coding is hard. We can't fix the fact that our ecosystem continues to grow and get ever more complex. So we created DEX. DEX by Century stands for Developer Experience. And the goal here is to ignite this conversation, this community around the fact that coding is hard and that we need to come together as an entire industry to solve for the people problems, for the tools problems, for the process problems, whatever the problems are. We need to come together and share various solutions and approaches to making that developer experience better. And that's why this year, we have invited speakers only. We actually didn't have a CFP. We have Guillermo, the CEO of Vercel. We've got April, who leads GitHub Code Spaces. Jewel, who's been an engineering leader at Reddit for over five years. Divya, who is an incredible engineer and leader at Fly.io. And so many more people that have just a vast amount of experience leading through chaos, leading through these moments of, oh my God, I just took down YouTube or, oh my God, there's this huge outage on Dropbox. And they have a lot of experience, knowledge, and suggestions for how we can get started on improving our developer experience. If you can't come in person, which it'll be in San Francisco at the Pearl, highly recommend you still register and attend our live stream version. We actually have Anthony, who's a Century engineer, who is also an avid Twitch streamer, who will be hosting our live stream event. So it's not just some awkward camera in the corner. But if you can come in person, we definitely welcome you. And I I hope to see you there. Okay, virtually or in person, either works. Save your seat now using this trustability link. That's bit.ly slash DEX2022. That's bit.ly slash DEX2022. The link is in the show notes. sounds to me like you could choose scope 
but you don't want to choose scope because then time becomes an unknown. You don't know how long it's going to take. And I think this is really, really important because guess what? Your most popular video to date, the real reason Cyberpunk 200 software failed, 2077 software failed, it's a story of choosing scope over time. This is December 2020, that's when you published the video, so it's an older one. It had 500,000 views, just over 4,000 comments. 4,000 comments. It's unbelievable, like the amount of feedback <laughs> this video, video received. So this game was announced eight years before it was actually launched, and when it was launched, it was a disaster. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Dave? Because I think it's all linked to what we just uh, talked about. Yeah, uh, and so th there was a... As you say, it was a disaster. It, it was pre-announced and initially they defined just scope. They got this incredibly ambitious um, vision for this game that was kind of pushing the boundaries of what the technology was, was like, you know, which was advancing at the time and so on. And then later, you know, it, it started to, I, I think that they probably imagined that it was going to take, that they were going to figure on scope, but they were going to deliver it within within a year or two, that kind of thing. And then it was taking longer than that, and it was taking longer than that. And I think that they probably got a little bit nervous, and then, then they started putting some time pressures on, and then doing what in the game industry is called, called crunch, which ends up with development teams working 60-plus hours a week to try and hit the deadlines and, and scope targets this irrational model of fixing the parameters. And so you tend to trade off quality at this point because the, the team's under pressure. And they released this and the game did some, you know, was pretty good on completely high-end bleeding edge technology and was pretty disastrous on the version before, particularly on the consoles, the PlayStation and Xbox, the versions that were by far the most popular platforms in the marketplace at the point at which the game was released. And so yeah, there are videos on YouTube of, you know, players, you know, walking through cars and, you know, floating in midair and buildings intersecting with, you know, other parts of this. It's just broken. It's just unplayable or, or was uh, at launch. And the team did a lot of work to fix this. But I, my video was about this as a failure of software engineering. In those 4,000-odd comments, some people kind of naively thought that I was just saying that these were bad programmers. But I, software engineering is, the, is what it takes to produce software. So it's all of the things. So, so the, primarily, the video, from my point of view, based only on public sources of information which you know I kind of linked to and kind of show where I got my, made my interpretation from but it was a fa it was a failure of planning and execution so on the planning basis they started off with good intent trying to fix scope but ended up losing their nerve and then fixing time and scope and the development team had that react the bad reaction of not evaluating their their system. My impression is that they, I'm almost certain, based on the information that, that was publicly available, that they weren't doing automated testing, they weren't doing continuous integration, that they were doing all sorts of common mistakes that lead to worse outcomes and slower progress. And they certainly weren't doing regular testing on the lower spec consoles that were the marketplace at the time of the release of the game. 
And so it ended up being a failure. I take it. I, I'm not a player of this game. And I, you know, I sometimes get game players saying, it's a good game. And I'm, I wasn't commenting on whether it's a good game or not. I was just talking about the software engineering. But I gather that they've done, the team has done a, you know, a reasonably good job of getting it better and playable now, fixing it after the fact, after it's in production. But it was kind of headline news for, for a while. And it is the video on my channel that kind of, you know, launched my channel at the point where it was at the, that video was released at the end of our first year. And at the time, my son and I were, we were, it was coming to the end of the year and we were placing bets on whether we were going to get 2,000 subscribers by the end of the year or not, which is pretty good going for the first year of a, a small channel. A month later, we, we got over 20,000 subscribers and now we're 125 or some, thousand or something. So When we last spoke, I commented on that. I was saying 55,000 when we recorded our last episode, episode five. We had 54,000 subscribers and I was saying, I was wondering how many will you have next time that we record? So we have yeah. the answer, 125,000, <laughs> more than doubled. And it just goes to show how much people appreciate what you share. And I think this, we are coming full circle. We're coming back to the beginning of the episode where, first of all, this started like when I reached out in episode five was like because of this continuous delivery channel, I was so excited about it. I was like, you know, and like there's so much great content there. This conversation is less than 1% of what is available on your YouTube channel, the continuous delivery one. There's hours and tens of hours at this point, maybe even hundreds of hours, I don't know, because it didn't count, but a lot of content which goes into a lot of detail about some of the aspects that we've only touched upon and some we haven't even touched upon. But I have a very important question to ask right now, which is, in which episode can we see your favorite t-shirt? <laughs> because that's like one of my favorite aspects of those episodes of those videos I can see you wearing different t-shirts <laughs> yeah the t-shirts were an accident too so I, I do have a penchant for silly t-shirts and I had uh, a t-shirt that I I had two t-shirts that I liked a lot that were kind of in jokes I'm kind of a nerdy person so I like science fiction and those sorts of things and I had a couple of t-shirts one of them was a crew t-shirt from the Nostromo, which is the spaceship in Alien, and the other one is uh, is a T-shirt that just says Surf Arrakis. Right, <laughs> Arrakis is the desert planet from Dune. So I, I, I thought those were funny, wow. and I wore one of those uh, for one of my for one of the episodes, one of the early episodes. And I've got lots of comments saying, oh, what a good joke, funny t-shirt, great, and so on. And now one of the commonest questions that I get in, in the comments of my videos is, is, is I like your t-shirts or where do you get your t-shirts? I've got two favorites. I think one of them, from what you were saying earlier, one of them is yours. So there's one that's kind of a scrambled collection of words, you know, words and numbers, but they're kind of readable in a, in a weirdly interesting way. Human beings can decipher them. And they just say, intelligence is the ability to change, Albert Einstein. And, and I, I like that one, that's good. But the other one that I like a great deal is, uh, it's a picture of Wiley Coyote Mm -hmm. from Looney Tunes with a stick of dynamite that says, trust me, I'm an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I grew up with those cartoons and they were yeah. so good. <laughs> Bugs Bunny as well, all those amazing yeah, cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's become a thing on my channel. So, so every episode I wear a t-shirt and 
Now, I try, I, I don't always succeed, but I try, I try to have a reason for each T-shirt. Some of them are quite subtle. Some of them are kind of in-jokes that are sort of related to what I'm doing. And I don't always succeed, but I try to do that. But one of the things that we did recently, again, mostly for a joke, was that we reached out to the company where I was buying most of my T-shirts from and said, we've got this YouTube channel and you know we keep getting asked where we bought where we get the t-shirts from you fancy doing something so we did a special offer where people would get money off every t-shirt that they bought that they bought and subscribers of our channel ended up buying something like 600 t-shirts wow. from from, the, from this company which was cool we, we just did it for a laugh so we might be doing that some more of that but yeah so we, we we're very pleased with that so so if you're interested in the t-shirts they usually they come from a place called qwerty Q W E R T E E. Okay. Dot com. And go to my channel if you're interested in the special offer. Yeah. There's, there's some links. But um, it's just a joke. It's just as a laugh and, and, and largely as an in joke. Of mm. So I, I quite like this one. Oh, yeah. This one doesn't work quite so well because it's got green in it and green screen for the videos don't work well. But Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we can fix that. If we do these Ship It episodes more often, you can use the t shirts that you like, but they don't work well <laughs> yeah. with green screens. There's no green screen here, so we can do that. <laughs> we fixed the problem. We're engineers. Problem solved. <laughs> right. So from all the videos that recorded in 2022, which is your favorite one? Your favorite one to produce? Like one that, you know, like you, you enjoyed recording it and talking about the subject. I've got, I've got one coming up, actually, okay. that I, enjoy, I enjoyed a great deal. Again, this is, I'm slightly nervous of this one because I don't, I don't know how it will land with, with users. But I'm, I'm a very, very nerdy person. And one of my hobbies is reading and learning about physics. Mm. Um, so I spoke at a couple of conferences recently. And at both of the conferences, I got asked the question is, what do, do I think about quantum computing? So I've done a recording about quantum computing in which I get to explain some ideas and some of my understanding of quantum physics. So that was a lot of fun. I'm not quite sure how useful it will be to people. Uh, I, I hope it will be to you for, but it will tell you how quantum computers work, I think, and what quantum computer programs look like and what it takes to write them. So I, I, I quite like that. That's fresh in my mind. There have been a few that have resonated. Um, I've been doing some longer form episodes. So, so once a month, we release a chat a little bit like this, but not quite the same with influential people from the industry that we call the engineering room on the channel. And so I think there's eight of those so far with different people. Talk to Martin Fowler, uh, Simon Brown, and so on. And we've got some interesting people coming up. But I had a great conversation not very long ago with Randy Schaub, chief architect at eBay, mm -hmm. wow. um, as he was then, talking about eBay's adoption of continuous delivery, which was really interesting. They've been doing some really interesting nice things longer term so some of the less popular videos that uh, that i liked a lot that didn't get watched as much as i hoped that they would i'm not quite sure whether they fit into the last year or they might be the year before but i did a couple of videos one of them about engineering at tesla and one of them about engineering at spacex because they're both continuous delivery companies they, they both operate continuous delivery they do trunk-based development for spaceships you know at spacex and I think, I think there's stuff to learn from that kind of engineering 
and you know the challenges of building world-class electric cars and the biggest space rockets ever and using the kinds of techniques that that we discuss in terms of continuous delivery and automated testing tdd all that kind of stuff and using that for factories and spaceships is just fantastic so i thought those were kind of interesting but i'm there's a lot of videos i i think that i'm pleased with and proud of and i'm looking at my monitor at the moment which has got sticky notes stuck all around the edges for upcoming ideas of things that i want to do but i haven't got around to yet so I remember us talking about the SpaceX videos and the Tesla ones last time, because that was like- Oh, I, I'm sorry I, it about just, that. It just, no, no, it just, it just blew my mind. It's interesting that, you know, a year later, you say the same thing, because for me, I've been trying to, well, first of all, connect with someone from within Tesla or SpaceX to talk about these things. I'm, to be honest, I'm working my way towards Elon Musk, but it's going to take a while, uh, you know, for me to get to interview him. But, you know, it's, I played a long-term game. A few years doesn't make a difference. Even 10, it's okay. You know, you know I've, I have quite a few left, so or so I hope. <laughs> Anyways, it's interesting how these principles that we talked, that you capture in your book, that you talk about in your videos, that many identify with, to be honest, most of us, right? And we kind of, we can't explain them. They are really universal. I mean, they apply to everything and not just software engineering. And that's that's where the fascinating thing comes in. It's just engineering. It's just good engineering. And some would say a sensible approach to anything, really. But we talked about time, and this is a really important one. So I just want to come back to that because uh, we are preparing to wrap up this episode. I wish we could like go for twice as long or even three times as long. We have plenty of things to talk about, but reality. So... We record this a couple of months before people will listen to it. And we started talking about this episode a couple of months back. So these things happen on a fairly long-term scale. I mean, we're talking months here, four months, I think, from, from us starting to talk to actually recording it, maybe even half a year, to be honest. Time is something that you cannot really choose. It just happens. I mean, you can pick, you know, like a point in time. But I think that's one of my favorite takeaways here is that these things will happen, right? It will be spring and then it will be Christmas and then, you know, whatever else is going to happen. And you need to pick a time which you think is good for you. And then we have Black Friday, which happens whether we want to or not. And a lot of releases, software releases, tend to coincide with these important dates. So you can't choose quality. We've already settled that one. Scope, it's better if you discover it, to be honest, like figuring out what you're trying to build. But pick a time, pick a time that's good for you to get it out there based on everything else that's happening. And even that may be influenced and just get it out there, get it out there in the world when the time comes, ship it literally and figure out like, is this right or is this wrong? And don't just wait for that one moment in time. Do it more often as we will try to do these episodes more often because they're great fun. But what is your favorite takeaway, uh, Dave, from this conversation? I think that the theme, for me, the theme of the conversation really is, I definitely sound like I'm selling my book now, but it's kind of the theme of the engineering book, which is I've, I've admitted already to being a popular science fan, I, you know, and interested in physics as a hobby, which might be a weird hobby, I don't know, but uh, it's mine. And one of the things that I, I think about it's, uh, philosophically is, is really what we're talking about when we're talking about engineering is kind of the, the practical application of scientific style ideas 
And so I think science is humanity's best problem-solving technique. And so we should be applying that kind of thinking to software development. And I don't mean in in simplistic terms like, you know, we should be writing down our experiments in the same way that scientists do or anything like that. But I think there there are some kind of more fundamental philosophical ideas like we've talked about starting off assuming that we're probably going to make mistakes and then trying to figure out how we can detect the mistakes as quickly as we can and fix them when we detect them the reason that you were talking about time you know time matters in the release of software deeply and what we found is that we can make our lives an awful lot easier if we shorten the time horizons of changes. If you think about one of the differences between releasing once every six hours and once every six months, it's just the amount of stuff that we put into production. And just inevitably, whatever it is that we're doing, if we're releasing six hours worth of work rather than six months worth of work, that's gonna be lower risk because there's less stuff in the change. There's a, there's a smaller delta between what's in production now and what's in production after the release in over a six hour time horizon rather than a six month time horizon. So that means you're gonna be safer. Each release, each individual release is gonna be safer. And part of the reason why Jez and I wrote the continuous delivery book was to try and highlight that point that we get an awful lot of benefit if releases were a non-event. We didn't have to worry about them. We didn't. I, I remembered something recently that we once released software into production on Christmas Eve as we were leaving the office wow. to go home for the Christmas break. You were the bad boys. You were like that scene <laughs> yeah. with the bus in the in the background exploding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't a risk because it was all automated. It yeah. all tested. It, it would all be fine. We were confident. And and so, you know, I, I think that's where you want to end up. And so I, I think embracing this idea that we're, I think starting out, assuming that we're probably wrong and working defensively is probably the, the you know, the fundamental, the superpower, the, th- the thing that kind of really sits underneath everything else that we're talking about. And that's very like the kind of idea of the, the sceptical mind. So science works that way. Modern science, you attempt to falsify things rather than prove things. And that's kind of the same thing. So, so where are we wrong rather than prove that my idea is right is fundamentally what it is that we're trying to, the principle that we're going to try and organize around. David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for today. I'm very much looking forward to the next time. And what I'll try to do is shorten the period between having you on next. So cool. that's what I'm looking forward to. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. And you. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Shipping. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your Firecracker VMs and Guard integration are really sweet. That's it for this week. See you all next week. You can thank Andrew Welker for the next week's episode. He suggested that I talk to David Flanagan, aka RawCode, about Clustered, RawCode Academy, and all the other interesting things that David has been up to. 